Hey everyone, before we begin this week's episode, I'd like to ask you all a shameless favor. If you could take a minute to rate the podcast five stars on iTunes and leave a review, it would really help us get the word out about the show and help others find it. We'd also like to invite you to join the conversation. If you have a topic that you would like us to cover, send us an email at jewishlivingpodcast at gmail.com. You can either write in or record your suggestion. Either way is fine. Who knows? You may be featured on an upcoming episode. Now, on with the show. The Queen's Jewish Link presents the Jewish Living Podcast, the show that examines the many facets of Orthodox Jewish life. Here's your host, Izzo Zwerin. It's hard to self-evaluate. In fact, that's my go-to answer on job interviews. What's your greatest weakness? Self-evaluation. It's a great answer because it's probably true for the vast majority of us. We can't tell if we're doing a good job or not without someone telling us one way or the other. We often get into our own head and either expect the worst or assume the best. It's very difficult for us to really be mindful of ourselves. Fortunately for us, today on the Jewish Living Podcast, we were able to catch up with someone who's all about the thoughtful mind. My name is Tzvi Hilsenrath, LCSW. I'm a psychotherapist and I'm the host of the Thoughtful Mind with Tzvi podcast. That's right. Two podcasters, one show. We sit down with Tzvi to discuss how to take control over our minds and overcome our own insecurities. Now, this episode is going to be a bit longer than usual because, as Tzvi says, I don't necessarily do short so well, but I'll do my best. Tzvi, thank you so much for joining me. The no name pleasure. of your podcast is Thoughtful Mind with Tzvi. I would like to think that minds are, by definition, thoughtful. Can you talk to me a little bit about the name of your podcast, how you came up with that? Sure. In my way of thinking, there's there's two parts to the mind. You have the you know, the thinking brain, that conscious part, the the thoughts that you notice, and then you have the intuition, the subconscious or, or unconscious. And those two things are both acting at the same time. And both of them need attention and both of them need care. So when I was thinking about the name of my podcast, one of the things I wanted to focus on was both the the thinking stuff and also the intuition stuff. And so I think of the thoughtful as like the thinking part. And the mind as like the intuition part. And one of the things as a therapist I do is I try to get people to be thoughtful about their mind. And also mindful about their thoughts. But thoughtful mind, mindful thought with C is too much of a mouthful. <laughs> That's great. When, when, I, when, I was, when I first came across your podcast, my immediate reaction was that it was kind of like a mindfulness thing. Which you have to be, you can't just think about things. You have to understand and figure out why you arrived at certain thoughts and how your mind kind of works. And that's kind of where I thought you were going. So yeah, that's basically what you were saying. The thing about mindfulness, I'm, I'm just going to jump for one second. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. But um, the thing about mindfulness is that it's a wonderful word and it's wonderful that people are becoming aware of it, but also it's kind of a catch-all. It's like, I know gluten is a very specific thing, but I have a feeling that when people say, oh, I'm gluten-free or I don't do gluten or whatever, they don't really know what they're talking about. And they kind of just think of gluten as bad stuff in food. And so when it comes to mindfulness, it's an important word and, and it's something I, you know, I use in my work. But also, I try to break it down so it's not this mysterious word. You know, one of the things that I like to do in my podcast is every time I go in, I'm coming in with a very specific technique in mind or a very specific theory in mind. And sometimes I think about the stuff that I talk about, and, and some of it is in conflict with one another, or, or they take radically different approaches to one another. And knowing that you know all of this is just part of the larger whole, 
but being able to break down each piece and knowing that because everybody is so different, everybody needs their own little thing. And as a therapist, I see it like all the time, like this person needs this and this person needs that. So when I came up with the name Thoughtful Mind, mindfulness was like in my brain, but also breaking it down so it's not this mysterious catch-all word that people use without being so obvious about it. That was That was part of it. One of the interesting things about doing a podcast is that once I start talking, I sometimes go off topic and then later on I listen to what I said. I'm like, wow, you know, that sounds smart. <laughs> I just learned something. <laughs> I, I actually on one of the episodes that you that I, well, not you just did. It's one that I just listened to. I heard in your voice when you figured out that you were going way off topic and you brought yourself back. Like you figured it out and I, and I heard the moment that you figured out that you were going too far off and you realized that you needed to bring yourself back and you were able to connect well, that, in the, in that in the moment. Well, this is interesting and, and I know we're getting a little off the question you asked, but this is a very interesting thing to me and I haven't spoken about it and I'm not sure how to speak about it, but I'm going to speak to you about it right now. And that is thinking is actually really hard. And what I mean by that is that constructive thought, meaning thoughts building one and another and coming to a further understanding is a lot harder and we do a lot less of it than we think we do. So we do a lot of thinking and we do a lot of that unconscious stuff and do a lot of thinking in the moment. But this developing thought idea where my brain grows or my thoughts grow, it's hard to do. And specifically, it's hard to do alone. That's why in the yeshiva system where you have two people studying together, you usually get much further than if you were just studying alone. Right. Um, because you have somebody else to talk aloud to and to bounce ideas off of. It's one of the reasons why writing is so important as a part of developing. When I was speaking with my father, who's a very wise man, and uh, I was talking to him, should I or should I not do a second season? Should I continue to do this? And one of the things he pointed out was that through the process of doing a podcast, I have to develop my own thinking in areas. And that's what I'm saying. Once you start talking aloud, just like once you start writing aloud, your brain can go in areas that have kind of been under the surface. They've been there, just you haven't uncovered them. And you start going in different directions. And one of the things I was thinking about for the second season, although I didn't do it for many reasons, was to bring a co-host on for the for the second season to help me develop ideas outside of my own head. So even in this conversation that we're having right now, we're talking about something that neither of us planned on talking about, and we're developing the idea past what either of us already had in mind. That's exactly true. Because we, yeah. we came on talking, we were going to talk about your expertise, and now we're just kind of talking about uh, how we analyze ourselves as podcast hosts. Well, it, yes, exactly. As podcast yeah. and as people, right. um, one of the things that I'm very blessed as a therapist is that I get to talk to people. I literally spend my entire day talking to people and in trying to join with people and in trying to understand people, I get to join and understand myself better. You know, Freud had this idea of the therapist being a blank slate, just like a total blank slate joining with the person. But that's not real. That's not reality. I mean, I have nothing but respect for Sigmund Freud. That man was a genius. And the more I learn about his work, the more literally today I was speaking with the client about his stages of development and how they applied to that person's life. And, and it was really helpful to the guy. Um, Sigmund Freud was a genius. That having been said, this idea of us being a blank slate as a therapist, it's just impossible. We're not, we're, you know, therapists are not blank slates. We're people too. And so through the process of helping other people, I actually come to a greater understanding and a greater helping of myself. 
Now the trick is not to make that the session. You know, it's about them, obviously. Right. But but that is a blessing of of part of the work that I do. Absolutely. That's basically what I used to be a teacher. That's kind of a lot of the things that happen. It's a little bit of a cliche when a student becomes a teacher, but you do pick up things from your students and become you become a better teacher. You become a better you. So I want to circle back to something that you mentioned earlier, and that is that as a therapist, you understand that it's not like a, a one size fits all situation. There's different things work for different clients, um, different strategies. What I want to focus on in this discussion are situations that are more broadly applicable to many people. And I want to specifically focus on situations that aren't necessarily associated with mental health per se. Obviously, everything we're going to be discussing, if there's an extreme example of it, that could border or even jump into mental health. But there are certain areas of life that are applicable to almost everyone, if not everyone. So I kind of want to focus on that because that kind of has everybody who listens to this podcast in mind. I know on your podcast, you have kind of a mix of things where you go into specific areas of mental health. And then there's more broad things. On this podcast, we're going to discuss kind of a more broad thing. So I want to break it into a couple of different sections. The first one that I want to talk about is people's ability to change. In my mind, the older you get, the harder it is to change. But what makes it so hard for people to change, whether it be a habit or whether it be an opinion about something? I'm going to take a step back before I get to the change. And if I never get to change, please remind me that that's what the question was. No problem. Because you mentioned mental health before. And in my experience, nobody goes through life without some period of mental illness. And by mental illness, I don't mean like serious depression or, you know, schizophrenia, bipolar, something like that. I don't mean that. But I mean, in the same way that you can have a cold and still go to work, you can have mental illness and still do whatever you're doing. Everyone goes through stressful situations. Everyone goes through times in their life where they're feeling overwhelmed. Everyone goes through times in their life when they're feeling insecure. On, on a certain spectrum. Right. And recently I did an episode on uh, Rabbi Salvechik's Lonely Man of Faith, where he talks about uh, a person's need both to be physically creative, uh, to accomplish in the physical world, but also to have a spiritual connection. That's a great example of everyone goes through that. Everyone has a time in their life when they need to be physically creative, accomplishing, and when they're not, they're in mental pain. They're in psychiatric pain and emotional pain. And when they're not connecting spiritually, then they're going to be in that psychiatric and mental and emotional pain. And one of the things I try to do with my podcast is, although I talk about therapeutic techniques, I put thought into who's listening. So I have a few people, I don't want to name them, but I have a few people who don't necessarily have serious you know, mental illness or serious depression or anxiety or whatever. And my thing is, can I get them to learn something from this episode? Because so many times the words mental illness scare people away. You know, the word depression scares people away. And that's not me. We're so afraid of that being us. We don't address the things that we need to address because we don't want to admit to ourselves there's something that needs to be addressed. So when you're talking about the broader stuff, I like to think the more we know, the more prepared we are when it comes down the pipeline. Because it always comes down the pipeline. Now to get to change. So change is a really hard one because we're kind of stuck. We're all kind of stuck in one area of our life or more. When people come to me, when I'm working with somebody, it's a more acute stuckness, meaning like that, that stuckness, that lack of change, 
that inertia is causing real problems in their life. But everybody's stuck in some area. I mean, it's just part of being human. And and so much of life is just admitting to ourselves that that we're human. And and this is part of, of living. And when it comes to change, we have incentives to stay the way we are. All of us are selfish in a good way. All of us are looking out for our own good to the best that we perceive it in the moment. We're all working toward that. But there's a lot of stuff that's happening underneath the surface that we're ignoring because if we didn't ignore it, our brain couldn't handle it. Like the fact that we have a conscious, subconscious, and, and unconscious mind is good because if all the thoughts were on top, we would go crazy. You know, our, our computer would crash. The computer and brain are not exactly the same, but our, it's, it's a good example here. So if I was thinking about breathing every moment, if I was thinking about keeping my heart going at every moment, I would go crazy. And more than that, if you were thinking about all of your senses all of the time, you'd go crazy. So right now, you're um, smelling stuff, you're hearing stuff, you're seeing stuff, you're feeling stuff on your skin, like you're, you're aware of the feel of your clothing on your skin, of, of your seat, um, your hand on your face, you know, your earphones on your head, your glasses on your nose. Now, if I'm not pointing these out, you're not necessarily feeling them consciously, but your brain is kind of filtering stuff out. Because if, if we took in all information equally, we would just go crazy. Our brain couldn't handle it. So we filter stuff out constantly. And so what ends up happening is one of the reasons we become stuck is because we're ignoring the reasons why we're staying how we are and only focusing on how we wish we would be. And so here's a great example. I worked with somebody who was very overweight. I'm talking about like 400, 450 pounds. And he was constantly talking about how he wants to lose weight, constantly talking about it. And I really do believe he wanted to lose weight. And meanwhile... He was taking in thousands of calories every day just to maintain that weight. I mean, to weigh 450 pounds consistently, you have to be taking in a lot of calories. If you took in 4,000 calories a day, to the best of my understanding, you would lose weight at, from 450 down. You have to really be taking in tremendous amounts of, wow. of food and calories. And so you have to ask yourself, this guy's heart is going to pop like a grape at some point. Why isn't he changing? Right? Or the person that's like, yeah, I really want to, I really want to quit smoking. I, this is bankrupting me. It's killing my health. And yeah, sorry, um, breathing on podcasts is, is annoying, yeah. but it gets the point across. Why do people do that? Because they're so focused on what they want that they're ignoring why they're doing what they're doing. There's a great therapeutic technique called motivational interviewing, which really looks at the motivations that we have for why we do what we do. And it's really just a lot of smart stuff. And one of the things that motivation interviewing talks about is focusing on different areas. So area number one, if I would change my behavior, what would I gain? For example, uh, this guy that was overweight, well, his health would come back and he'd be able to start walking again. He wouldn't need a walker or a wheelchair. He would be more attractive because that was something that bothered him. You know, there's, there's a lot of different things. Uh, he would he'd be saving money because he was spending like tons of money on takeout food, literally all of his money on food. So if the change would happen, that's what he would gain. If the change wouldn't happen, right, you're staying how you are. What's the loss? Well, his heart is going to pop like a grape. His, uh, his, his arteries, his veins are going to close up. He's going to die. Ultimately, he's going to remain unattractive. Um, he's going to have to keep using a wheelchair, which he was a young guy, and this was very demeaning to him. People are going to make fun of him, right? That was a big thing for him. 
So those are the things that are obvious. That's what anybody can look at and be like, of course, why isn't he changing, right? Uh, look right. at all the benefits change and all the negatives to not changing. But now we're going to take it a step further. What are you going to lose with the change, right? What are you going to lose? Well, he loves food and he's going to lose the food he loves. The food to him is a comfort. In his living situation, it was one of the few things, one of the few pleasures he had. And again, we're all coming to make ourselves happy. You know, we're all working selfishly toward our, our what we believe in the moment to be our greater good. And to him in that moment, he'd be losing the one thing that was making him happy. So why would he let go of that? You know, so if he, the change happens, he loses this thing that's very important to him. And also, if the change doesn't happen, then what does he gain? Right, which is kind of connected to that. What does he gain? Well, right now he's enjoying this thing. It's something that uh, nobody can control except for him. He didn't have a lot of control over many areas of his life, but his food he did. And if he's going to lose control of that, well, you know, that's something he keeps by not changing. He keeps that control. And so one of the things that that we do to ourselves is we put blinders. You know, like you ever see um, the horses in uh, Central Park? Right. I think they got rid of them and then they came back. But you ever see the horses in Central Park and they have the blinders on the sides of their head so they stay looking straight. And that's what we do to ourselves. We do that to ourselves. We put blinders on ourselves to keep us focused on one thing and it ign we ignore everything else. And so when we're talking about why people don't change, we're only looking at part of the whole and not everything else that's happening. Everything else that they're gaining by not changing or what they would lose with the change. That's one reason people don't change. Um, there's other reasons I can get into more if you so want. I, I mean, there's there's a bunch of different reasons I know, and I know you talk about it a lot on your show, but you spoke just now about, I guess, a change in diet. And th so that's a behavior. Sure. So I want to ask you about other things aside from diet. What about an opinion? People go through life and they have this one opinion and it's so hard for them to get off of that opinion. I was wondering what goes into the ability to change your opinion on something. Okay, that's actually uh, a really interesting question. Oh, thank you. Yeah, uh, you're welcome. By the way, to all the listeners, I want to point out what Izzo just did, which is really hard to do, which is he took a compliment. One of the things that I've noticed, I, I'm totally serious. One of the things that I noticed that a lot of people have a hard time with in life is taking compliments. I know I have this and I meet people all the time that don't know how to say thank you when they take a compliment. So if you ever get a compliment, do what Izzo just did. Say thank you. Because if you make a joke out of it or you deflect it or you say it's not true, the person was kind to you and now you're kind of throwing it back in their face. And then both of you walk out of that with, with negativity. Keep it positive. Say thank you. I actually have that same opinion when it comes to receiving a gift. I, I don't like saying, oh, you didn't have to do that or you shouldn't have or things like that. It makes the person who's giving you the gift feel bad about, oh, I didn't really have to do this. Why did I spend the time and the money and the effort? So when somebody gives you a gift, say thank you. That, that really means a lot. And... If they give you another gift, then you win again. Absolutely. that That's 100% true. Exactly so. So let's go back um, to the opinion question. Yeah. So the opinion. So it's like this. So here's my thinking on it. On a certain level, we can't control our opinions because our brains, our thoughts are, are a relationship between us and our surroundings, um, our culture, our immediate surroundings, our immediate family, our extended family, uh, the culture that we live in. Like, for example, uh, you, you have a Orthodox living podcast. So the Orthodox culture, uh, more specific, what kind of Orthodox are we talking about? The city that you're living in, East Coast, West Coast, it's a different culture. What country you're living in, Americans and Canadians share a border, but have very different uh, ways of thinking. 
Um, so all of these things. And then, of course, you yourself. Some of it, interestingly enough, and I don't know the science of this as as well as I would like. It's it's one of the things I want to look into. A lot of your opinions are formed by biology. Like the 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 brain, the way certain parts of your brain work and, and certain parts are are more active than others in some people, that also forms your opinions. And if you don't make a conscious effort to have your opinion changed, it's going to calcify, and especially in a uh, current day and age, because now we live in a digital world of social media. And it used to be, Robert Putnam wrote a book called Bowling Alone, where he talks about, I haven't read the whole book, but the basic idea is that the more we go digital, the less interactive we are and the more we kind of calcify in our thinking. So opinions become instead of more fluid, become less fluid and more rigid. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I stay off of social media. Well, there's 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 a couple of reasons I stay off of social media. First of all, I, I can't handle it. You know, being realistic about yourself and your capabilities is really important for mental health. And I think I was on for like like a day on on uh, I don't even remember one of, which one it was. And it was yeah, this is just taking up too much of my life in this like day or two. I can't. I, I'm off. And so I'm not on social media because of it, or I don't think I am. So it, it, when it comes to the online world, because we're now a global network, it's so easy to find people that think exactly like you and it becomes exactly. an echo chamber. And so now we're all just echoing each other's thoughts. I think I have the best job in the world. I really do. I love my job. And one of the great things is that I come into contact with people every day that think differently than me, that have different opinions than me, and I respect them. Because, you know, I see their, well, not their literal insides, that would be kind of gross, but I <laughs> see their insides and I, you know, I see their souls in a way. I, I've always thought of therapy as kind of like souls touching and yet they disagree with me so strongly. And as a therapist, I'm keeping my opinion to myself, but it gives me an opportunity to learn from people. And I, I've always thought that changing your opinion takes effort because it takes effort in taking yourself and saying, I think a certain way. And if I stay thinking exactly this way, that's fine. But at least let me challenge those ideas. Now, maybe I'm going to stay the certain way. You know, I can honestly say um, I'm, I'm a pretty conservative thinker when it comes to like politics and stuff. Okay. I'm, I'm pretty conservative. Um, I always say I have a, a liberal heart and a conservative mind. <laughs> and that kind of goes with my profession, you know, is, is a little more liberal and my religion is a little more conservative and me trying to figure those two things out, how those two things together changed my opinion on both ends. As a social worker, as a therapist, that opinion was changed being a religious person, um, a you know, more conservative person. And then being a religious person, also my, just my thinking changed. My connection to God changed in, in kind of my expansion of my own thinking. So looking at other people that, that don't agree with you, reading other things and being willing to understand that just because something's in a book, just because somebody says something on a podcast doesn't make it true. You know, we, we as people kind of, we trust what we read. And it's, it's a dangerous thing because not everything that's written down is true. And really taking the time to think, here's a very important piece. When you find yourself physically disagreeing with somebody, I don't mean getting in an altercation, but I mean, you know, that moment in your body where you feel like in your gut, that the, what they're, well, I disagree with this other person. What they're saying is wrong. Instead of just, you know, vomiting out words to argue with them, take a minute to think about why you disagree with them. Uh, Jerry Spence in his book, How to Argue and Win Every Time, says the first step to arguing is listening. And one of the reasons is because maybe they're right. Maybe you're wrong. Having the humility to say, 
maybe I'm wrong. We're all the star of our own movie. Everyone thinks they're the center of the world, which is natural and good. But also, it makes us think that we're always right. And we're not. We're not always right. And so being willing to say, not from a weakness point of, of thinking I'm bad or I'm wrong because I'm, I'm imperfect, but from a human point, from a strength point, saying like, look, I'm doing the best that I can with the brain that I have and the thoughts that I have, but I'm going to spend the rest of my life working on this and trying to become the most complete human I can be. Um, I guess willingness is, is maybe the one word answer I would give to, to the original question about changing opinions. So I'd like to shift focus onto another thing that you speak about on your podcast, where you discuss kind of the way that we look at, at ourselves and the problems that we all face. So you have mm-hmm. a thing where you talk about the internalization and the ex- externalization of problems. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's look at what's the difference between the internalization and the externalization of problems. All right. So externalization. Externalization comes from um, uh, the field of narrative therapy. That's where the name comes from uh, or that and that's where I learned about it I've come across similar ideas in other areas but that's where I first learned it so that's how I like to think about it it's kind of a linguistic trick and then that linguistic trick because the way we talk is the way we think you know our, our the way we talk influences I just did an episode on on how our body can uh, affect our mind like how our actions affect our mind but really the way we talk also affects our mind um, one of the we were speaking before about change one of the reasons why when you try to get somebody else to change it doesn't work is because um, when you take they you know they have ambivalence so I'm, I'm gonna get back to externalization in a second but I kind of have to hit this point first so again we come back to the smoker I want to smoke I don't want to smoke uh, that's going that argument's happening in my head and now you come to me I don't smoke but um, in, in this theoretical scenario you come to me you say Tzvi stop smoking so now I have this argument stop continue stop continue and then you Izzo take the stop side I'm left with the continue side and now I tell you all the reasons why smoking is something I want to be continuing and the more I argue that the more I believe it and so the way we talk and the words that we say really do influence uh, how we think and so even though externalization is kind of a linguistic trick and we'll get to exactly what it is in a second, it really does influence how we think. Uh, and externalization in its simplest form can be, I'm taking something that I think of myself, an adjective. So for example, lazy, and I externalize it. I make it as something outside of myself by making it a noun, laziness. For example, I speak to somebody and they say, oh, I'm the most, you know, the most lazy person. I can't get anything done. And I'll say, so give me an example of how laziness affects your life. Okay, so now what I've done is instead of saying, give me an example of you being lazy, and now they're talking about themselves as lazy, I've separated laziness from themselves. Now there's this thing in their life called laziness. The person is the person, the problem is the problem. I took a one-week intensive class from Walter Barrow, who's a therapist in Minnesota, and he just used to hammer this home all the time. He said, the person is the person, the problem is the problem. And the problem wants us to think that the person is the problem. And we have to fight against that. Like it's an active fight to get people to realize that the problem is something that is not like it's an outside thing. Once you do that, you begin to establish a relationship between the person and the problem. So if I believe that I'm a lazy person, I like using laziness because it's a pretty benign example, right? Okay. Uh, if I believe that I'm a lazy person, or let, let me do it this way, right? So if I'm working with, with a client, I'm working with you, and you tell me you're, uh, I'm a lazy person. And then I say, well, Izzo, give me an example of when you weren't lazy. And then you say, well, I started this podcast. But in your brain, 
your brain has a narrative, has a story. And that story is I'm lazy. And there's an exception where I did this podcast, right? right? I'm still lazy. This is an exception. And so in any situation I come across, I'm going to go to my default, which is lazy. Kind of a built an excuse to doing things that you don't think is the right way to do things. Well, it's, it's, it's not my fault. I, I'm lazy. Like well, I'm just naturally lazy. Okay. Uh, I, I see what you're saying there. I think of it as, as stories, right? This okay. is the story we tell ourselves because yes, yeah, sometimes people use excuses, but again, I come from a, a, a place of everyone's trying to do the best they can with the tools they have in the moment. Okay. Um, that doesn't mean people aren't doing bad things or doing harmful things to themselves. It means that we have to kind of break through stuff to get rid of the problems or more specifically to get rid of the effects of the problems bring into their life. So to come back to our example, so you're saying I'm lazy. You can call it an excuse or, or, or a story, but that's the thing that's going on in your brain. Again, not consciously, subconsciously. And I guess that's why I don't like the excuse thing because it's not that you're thinking of an excuse. It's that this is the story you tell yourself. It, this happens before your brain, before your thoughts, right? This is the mind part. This is that subconscious, unconscious part. This is happening before you're even aware of it's happening. That lazy thing, it's underneath before you're even aware of it. And so then it, and when somebody comes to you with something, you have to first Again, before you even think about it, your brain has to go through the lazy story, right? Somebody says, do you mind helping me out with whatever? Your brain says, I'm lazy. Is this going to be an exception to the I'm lazy story, right? You see that that's, that's not a, a, a conscious thought, which would be an excuse. It's, it's this is the story I'm telling myself. Does this event, how does this event fit into that story? And so with externalization, we help people separate that. It's not that I'm lazy. I'm me. Right. Izzo is Izzo. There's this thing in Izzo's life called laziness. And Izzo has a, again, I don't know, maybe you're not lazy at all. <laughs> this is just the example. Izzo has a relationship with laziness. Okay. Every person has an ex, uh, a relationship with the problems in their lives. And so by exploring that relationship, we can then begin to change the relationship. And then Izzo has this thing in his life called laziness. It's a very strong relationship. The two of them walk hand in hand all the time. But sometimes Izzo lets go of laziness and grabs onto something else, right? And you can call that productivity. You can call that excitement. You can call that action. You can call it whatever word works for you. And let's call it action. Sometimes Izzo lets go of laziness and, and grabs a hold of action and creates a podcast, right? And so it's in that moment that Izzo is choosing to let go of one thing and hold on to something else. The relationship changes. And so it's not, I'm a lazy person and this is the exception. It's I'm me and I have a relationship with laziness and I have a relationship with action. And how do I want that relationship? Just in the same way that you decide how your relationships in your life go, you have total control over your relationship, over your part of your relationships. Let me be very specific. Um, you have total control over your part of all the relationships with other people in your life. You also have control over the relationships you have with the problems in your life. And what's really, really, really cool is um, once you start to do that, once you start to externalize all these factors in your lives, the problems stop being problems and they just start being things. Because sometimes maybe laziness is a good thing. Like if you have a lot to do, but if you keep doing stuff, you're going to get sick. Or if you keep doing stuff, you're not going to enjoy life. If you keep doing stuff, maybe you're going to be focused so much on work that you're not going to be with family. Maybe laziness you know, maybe it's not laziness anymore. Maybe it's relaxation or maybe relaxation and laziness are, are, you know, siblings, 
right? It's it's I'm changing the relationship, and sometimes it's a good thing. So it's not as a problem. It's just this thing in my life. Uh, so people are going to hear this, and they're going to think, that sounds like you're basically just removing a label from somebody or from yourself and making it more about that this is something that, that I have to deal with, not that I am this. I am not... Not that I am lazy. Not that I am. Um, not that I am. I'm trying to think of another vice. Not that I am. Not that I am depressed. Not that I am anxious. So I'm not depressed. I have depression in my life. I'm not anxious. Right. I have anxiety in my life. And this thing called anxiety lives with me. It lives in my head. Where in my head does it live? It lives in this right between my ears. Does it live in my heart? Does it live in my stomach? Where is it? Right. Uh, and how does it affect me? So how does anxiety affect my day to day life? And when was anxiety not around? When did anxiety first enter your life? Because nobody's born anxious. Well, I guess, you know, babies are kind of anxious when they're born. <laughs> but but, you know, when did it first enter your life? Right. Right. Was it when you were two? Was it when you were five? Was it when you were 20? Right. Mm -hmm. And then so and and I, I don't think I spoke about this on the podcast. Um, so here's a freebie. I like to think of it as an eclipse, right? So if you can imagine, um, and then I'll, I'll, I'll let you finish your question. <laughs> um, so if you think about it like a solar eclipse, right? The, the uh, moon is, is, is blocking the sun and it's completely dark and um, there's no light out, right? And that is the problem covering the person. I believe that we all have an, an inner light that we kind of share with the world with whether you want to call it energy, you want to call it blessing, whatever word you want to use, we have some kind of something in ourselves that we share with the world. And problems tend to block that. That's one of the things that makes problems problems is they, they stop us from sharing ourselves with the world. And so with externalization, what we start to do is we start to move the moon away from the sun. The light starts to come through, right? And so when we externalize something like anxiety or depression and we say, uh, you know, I'm not anxious I have this thing in my life called anxiety, we can start to see, you know, if it's not something that is in, inherently me, when did it come into my life? So what I was going to get at is that in my office, I work at an outpatient clinic. What they decided to do was the way that we talk about different conditions varies. So for mental health conditions, we don't call somebody a schizophrenic. We call them somebody who has been diagnosed with schizophrenia. Right. But if it's a medical condition, then we have no problem calling somebody a diabetic. That's kind of how they dealt with it. In that case, what you're saying is it's a way to separate yourself from the problem. My question would be, this seems like it's something that you can do to help your relationship with others, separate other people from their problems as well. So right. your son uh, is no longer, let's use the lazy thing. Your son's not lazy. Your son has a relationship with laziness. Your Husband is not cheap. He has a, a relationship with thriftiness, I guess. Hmm. So something like that, sure. where you're not applying a personality trait to somebody, but you're taking that personality trait out of the person. So my question, mm -hmm. my actual question would then be, if we strip down all of these attributes about ourselves, that it's no longer about those, those things that we have, are we kind of then, how do we define ourselves? Well, that's that's kind of the exciting journey of it. We get to find out, right? We get to find out through the course of our life who we are. I want to address something that you you mentioned in passing, and then I think that'll give a better answer, a more complete answer to what I just said. 
So you mentioned that you work in an outpatient clinic and you talk about, you know, we don't say schizophrenic. We see somebody struggling with schizophrenia, somebody diagnosed with schizophrenia, right? You can do that with, with like with depression, right? Are, are, you know, part of the struggle of my job is I, I bill insurance. And so I'm looking at these codes all day and it does, you know, affect how I think about people. You know, when, when I'm doing my paperwork, it affects how I think about the people that I've just seen and how I affect them in the future. And I have to fight against it myself, not to think of somebody as depressed, but as somebody as, as struggling with depression. Uh, but let's talk about diabetes for a second or cancer. We can even externalize those things. What do you mean? But the cancer is inside the person. The diabetes is inside the person. That's true. But they also have a relationship with diabetes and a relationship with cancer. And they have control over that relationship. So I think of, um, I had a teacher. Oh, he, he wasn't my teacher. But um, in the school that I went to, I had a teacher who had a very aggressive form of cancer. He ended up beating it. And then I believe it came back years later and, and he passed away. And he never missed a class. Um, and this wow. is long before Skype was something that was that people were doing. He did video classes because he, he had a relationship with cancer and his relationship is I'm not going to let cancer define how I live my life. Teaching is important to me. I'm not going to let cancer change that. That's a relationship that he made and he decided how it went. Diabetes, the same thing. You, a person can uh, have diabetes and literally let it take over their life either by ignoring it. Right. If a person ignores diabetes and then they start to lose toes, fingers, whatever, and then ultimately die, that's a relationship they ignored. But by deciding how you address the relationship of you and diabetes, it affects your entire life. Right. And so the who you are, which is what you discover over the course of your life, is how you, the inside, decides to have a relationship with all these things. That's who you are. Going back to Walter Berra, that, that, that teacher I mentioned before, I believe he mentioned he divided things into I, me, and self. And so there's the, this inner me, this, you know, the, like I said, the inner light, the inner energy, that's inside, that's immutable. And then that innerness, the I, has a relationship with all these parts of me, whether it's my attributes, laziness, depression, happiness, uh, energy, you know, um, activity, um, and then it has another relationship with everything outside, outside, physically outside of me, right? The people in my life and how I construct and how I react and control my relationships to both the me, all that, those attributes, and then everybody else and the world is kind of who I am. And one of the beautiful things about externalization is if I'm lazy then I'm, I don't really have choice over that. It's really difficult to, to change that. You know, we were talking about changing opinions and chains before. If I'm lazy, that's kind of built, baked into the cake. I'm lazy. What am I going to do about it, right? And if I have a relationship with laziness, now the responsibility is on me to change that relationship because laziness wants all of me it can get. And so it's up to me to take responsibility for that relationship. And, and I keep on talking about control and, and it's, it's hard. It's hard because our brain gets stuck in thought patterns. You know, I, again, we keep going back to the same stuff because all of the stuff is interconnected. But, you know, our brains are physically, um, you know, like literally like the, the rut that's formed by a wheelbarrow going back and forth on a path. You know, the same place gets, forms a rut. Our brain, our, 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 the connections in our brain form these ruts in an effort to shortcut things. And so, um, for example, I recently started uh, working in a new building. I work in multiple buildings um, uh, over the course of the week. I go to different buildings. I recently started working on a new one, and I didn't know how to get there. So what did I do? I did what everyone does in uh, the current year, which is 
I opened up Waze and I put on Waze, right? And then I went a couple of times and each time I'm using Waze, right? And then the, the last time I'm like, I'm not going to use Waze because now my brain knows where to go, right? So this time I opened it up, I read the instructions and then I went. And the next time I'm not even going to read the instructions because I just know how to go because my brain has formed a rut. And so by no longer allowing our brain to live in the ruts of relationships with ourself, right? With again, laziness, anxiety, depression, diabetes, whatever, by deciding, actively deciding, I'm going to change this relationship. Now it's hard because we keep wanting to go back to that rut. We keep getting dragged back into it. And so we have to be active in, in pursuing that change. But that same thing works for us because the more active we are in pursuing that change, the more we're consistent in defining the relationships how we want them defined with our problems and with the positive stuff too. The more consistent we are in pursuing that change, the more natural it becomes and the easier it becomes. You know, you asked about our relationships to others. It's very, very helpful to look at people and, you know, externalize the, you know, the negative stuff. That can be very helpful. You know, in, in, in orthodoxy, we have an idea of right, of judging the other person favorably. And I think one part of it is realizing that the other person is human and they are struggling with the same relationships with problems, not relationship problems, but the same, the same relationships with problems that we have. And so you're just understanding that they're human and they're doing the best that they can with the tools that they have in the moment and that nobody's perfect and you know, and, and all this other stuff is happening, all the stuff we kind of spoke about up until now, again, that doesn't mean people don't do bad things for bad reasons. And I do believe, by the way, I do believe there are genuinely bad people. You know, I get, get asked this a lot. Do you, you know, when I speak about this stuff, do you, I do believe there are genuinely bad people, but I don't necessarily believe that everybody starts out as a genuinely bad person. I think you have to become that. So just to clarify something that you said, that just because you have a problem and somebody else has a different problem, just because those problems are two different problems doesn't mean your relationships with those particular problems are any different. I'm struggling with this the same way that you're struggling with that. Exactly. Um, one of the things that, that we tend to do, again, it comes back to us being the center of our worlds, is we forget that everybody else is the center of their world too. And so we just see the outsides. In one podcast, I speak about how we compare our insides to the outsides of others this is very, very big on social media, right? Just makes it much worse because you can edit photographs and you can edit podcasts. If people just listen to my final version versus, you know, what I, when I push the, the start and stop button, it's two totally different things. I make a lot of mistakes. I go back, edit out all the, the bad noises, right? And we're constantly doing that in real life because we want to put our best foot forward always. And it's one of the reasons, and it'd be, more and more with social media and it's one of the reasons it's so hard to become vulnerable in the real world because we're trying to put out this best version we don't want people to see all the blemishes right and so we forget that everyone else is doing that too right and so we forget that people are struggling with problems too we forget that when we see somebody acting a certain way there's a problem in their life and they have a relationship with that problem and that relationship is causing them pain and causing them to act in certain ways you know just keeping that in mind that the same way I'm human in the center of my show and I have relationships with my problems and I don't always succeed in the way that I wish that I would, you know, just realize everyone else is doing the same thing. So that transitions me nicely into another thing that you speak about in your podcast, and that's the inner critic. If you can give everybody the, the brief, uh, like a synopsis of what the inner critic is. The inner critic is kind of a catch-all phrase for a lot of different things. There's a lot of different forms of the inner critic. It's, it's, as I mentioned in my podcast, it's one of the things that I've really, really had to struggle with 
over the course of my life is my own inner critic. And it can come from, from a variety of different places. If you have uh, an overcritical parent or if you have an undercritical parent, right? If you have an overcritical parent, so you internalize, right? There's that internalization process. Mm-hmm. You internalize the inner critic and it becomes part of who you are. Or if you have an undercritical parent, kids need for criticism, not like the bad criticism. Criticism has a bad connotation to it, but kids need guidance, which ends up being criticism. You know, it can be loving, but if there's none there, there's no guidance, kids, children, they don't feel safe and they start to do it to themselves. So we end up with a lot of kids that are just very insecure because they're their own inner critic because a parent never did it for them. Um, That's that's one place that an inner critic can come from. Inner critics, that inner voice, the voice you hear in your head that's telling you that you are doing something wrong when you're not necessarily doing something wrong or that you're no good, even though you do have value or minimizes your accomplishments and focuses on your failures. Everybody has an inner critic, but not everybody's inner critic's voice is strong. And not every inner critic's voice is bad. So for example, if a person's behaving in in destructive behavior, right? And their voice in their head, not I don't mean voice like schizophrenia, hallucination type voice. I mean, the voice like your own mind talking to itself. It's often a feeling less than words, um, but it's often words where you're like, yeah, this is a bad idea. This is a bad idea. If someone is engaged in destructive behavior and their inner critic is telling them stop or what you're doing is wrong, that's good. It's a positive thing. Or if somebody makes a mistake and the inner critic says, well, that was not the right thing to do. That can also be a good thing because you learn to, from your mistakes, right? But the moment that you make a mistake and your inner critic says that was the wrong thing to do, and then five minutes later says that was the wrong thing to do, and then later that night you wake up in the middle of the night for just you know just a second as you're turning over and you remember that thing you messed up on, that embarrassing thing you did, and then uh, you know tomorrow you think about it, and then three days later you think about it. At that point, that becomes a destructive inner critic. So, uh, you know, it's like, um, oh, here's a good way to think about it. It's like music, right? Uh, music is a wonderful thing. I love music, right? But too low, you can't enjoy it and you get no benefit. Too high and it'll hurt you. So that voice in your head that's constantly analyzing what you're doing, why you're doing it, um, what you've done in the past, what you might do in the future, that analyzation thing. If it's too low, you don't get the benefit. If it's too high, it's destructive because you can't live with it. One example I give is when the inner critic is too strong, and you try to shut it down, right? You're like, no, no, like, don't think about that. What does it do? It, it points something else. So you made a mistake. You did something on Wednesday, December 4th, 2019, right? And you keep thinking about it. And you say, you know what? I'm, I'm, I did the best I could. I'm not going to think, I'm going to, I'm not going to think about it anymore. Your inner critic says, okay, no problem. Let's talk about that time on October 31st, 2016, when you did that thing. Oh, I'm not going to think about that. So now you got your hand on the dam. You know, that's holding back the water, the cracks in the dam, you get your hand on something. And now it's like, let's talk about that thing you did when you were six and you embarrassed yourself. Now you're, you're holding that down with your face. And, you know, eventually something's going to get through. When your inner critic is, is, is out of control, when that, that critical voice, again, critical not in like the negative way, but in like a movie critic, right? Or like a, like a, a music critic of analyzing what's going on and sometimes praising, sometimes saying negative. But when that's out of control, that's an inner critic. And when, when we talk about the inner critic, that's what we're talking about. So I know that you discussed on your podcast various ways that the inner critic can manifest itself and, and, mm-hmm. and have a lot of harmful effects. One thing that I didn't hear you say, and, and that's why I'm bringing it up, and for people that want to hear more about that, they can go listen to that particular one. Um, episode 11. Episode 11. 
<laughs> but the one thing that I didn't hear you talk about is that could it have the effect on people then questioning whether or not they deserve to be happy, they deserve to earn things? What like does mm-hmm. that have mm-hmm. that op- that mm-hmm. possible effect? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely, one hundred percent. Yeah, uh, the, the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's it's so true. Because the critic could then say, oh, you generally, you're just not good at this, or you're generally, don't make the right decisions. You happen to get lucky in this one, and that's really just, you don't really deserve this reward. Have it now, but you don't really deserve to have it. And that might reduce your possibility of achieving the same reward in the future. Sure. And let me talk about myself for a second, because... One of the hard things with this podcast is being open and vulnerable about my own struggles with uh, depression and, and, and whatnot, and, and specifically with inner critic. It's, it's a hard one for me. And talking about it on the podcast and talking with other people about it has been very helpful for me. But it is one of my biggest struggles is the inner critic. And it really does wear away at you and does wear away at your belief that you deserve to be happy and that, that what's happening in your life is not a result of luck, right? Like you mentioned luck. For, for years, for decades, I felt like I, I had lived a, a charmed life. Like I had so much good in my life, and none of it was because of me. None of it was because of the work that I put in. None of it was because of the effort I put on myself. It was just I was lucky, or more specifically, you know, as a religious person, I was blessed. God was just giving me blessing. And then I was worried, like, is my blessing coming from my share in the world to come? If I'm having blessing down here, do I not have blessing there? Because I'm worthless... Therefore, God is giving me the blessing, but it's taking away from all that. You know, like it was really messing with my head. And that is, it's a lie, right? It's a lie that we tell ourselves. It's a lie that my inner critic was was telling me. And once I began to externalize the inner critic and think of it in that way, I'm able to see that, no, I work really hard at my job and I'm good at my job. I'm not saying this to boast. I'm just, I'm good at my job. And therefore, when I'm rewarded for doing my job well, that's a result of that. It's a result of me doing my job well, not a result of me having to be at the right place at the right time, that God is just giving me blessing that's undeserved, right? And when I have a feeling, when that inner critic again, uh, you know, when it's turned up to 11 and it's, it's kind of drowning out everything else in my life, I don't believe that I deserve to be happy. I do put other people's needs first, you know, and, and which is harmful to me. I kind of struggle with this one because we live in a, in such a selfish society, and this idea of I'm doing me uh, really gives people an excuse to be horrible horrible people, or or more specifically to do horrible things to other people. And you know, with everything in life, it's a balance. You know, but you do have to take care of yourself first before you can take care of others, or you're kind of borrowing from the future. It's something else I speak about. You're borrowing from your energy and you're borrowing from from the future about what you can give to others, and kind of putting brakes on that and focusing on what do I need, what do I deserve. It's an important part of the growth process. And again, it comes down to what's the relationship I have with that inner critic. At that point in my life, that relationship was I was being smothered by the inner critic. It was such a strong, close thing. It was covering me up. And by acknowledging, first of all, by admitting to myself that I had an inner critic, by externalizing it and noticing it in my mind, by taking actions, like one thing that I mentioned in my podcast, a tool is to say like, no, thank you. You know, thank you, mind. Thank you, inner critic. I appreciate the feedback, but, you know, I appreciate it. And then just moving on. Like, don't argue with it. Don't try to, you know, like I said before, don't try to say, I'm not going to think about it. Trying to not think about something is almost impossible. 
if not impossible, just saying thank you and then moving on with my life, just things like that opens me up to saying, you know, I am worth it. I am a good person. I do deserve happiness. And and also there's a correlation between my my success and my happiness and the actions I take. Because the flip side of it is that if my actions are not connected to my happiness, if it's all luck or it's all blessing from God or whatever, then that's a reason that I don't have to put in effort because it's not going to matter anyways. Is there, If there's no connection between my effort or my taking responsibility for my own life and the blessing that comes into my life, then why would I put in effort? Okay, so I do want to focus a little bit on certain situations that are kind of specific to the from world. These aren't like what we spoke about until now is general. It's very applicable to anyone. But this is the Jewish Living Podcast. And I want to talk about some stressors in people's lives that are not necessarily unique to Orthodox Jews, but definitely have a more wide-ranging appeal to them. Is that all right with you? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to give you something, uh, uh, certain stressors, and I want to see if you have maybe a short piece of advice for people on these things. Sure. All right. Uh, I I don't necessarily do short so well, but I'll do my best. All right. (laughs) So let's start with Yomim Tovim. So there's the stress leading up to Yomim Tovim, whether it's cooking, cleaning, buying the necessary items, getting ready for guests, getting ready to pack. So those types of stressors generally are around Yom Tovim time. What can people do to ease that stress? Preparation. Uh, Yom Tov is coming. I've had it before. What have I done that has not worked? And let me not do that. And let me think of what will work. Preparing yourself mentally, preparing yourself physically. Uh, one of my episodes, I think your first episode, you had a nutritionist, right? Right. That's right. So in, uh, I believe my oh, fourth or okay. fifth episode, I had a nutritionist on. We spoke about diet. And and I, I actually lost about 40 pounds uh, wow. over about a year ago. And, you know, preparation and like don't overeat because overeating brings on stress and, and, and makes you tired, which makes you more stressful. You're talking about the preparation of like I'm going to be around people. Everyone has somebody in their family that they don't get along with on some level. Right. And you, you kind of have to pretend you get along with them because they're your brother, sister, cousin, parent, grandparent, whatever. And you want to be nice because it's your family. But prepare yourself. Say, like, this person is going to make me up to anxious, whatever. It's going to be bringing back to my childhood, you know, uh, when when whatever happened. And it just reminds me of that every time being prepared mentally and physically. You know, what did I do in the past that hasn't worked? Let me not do that. What do I want to see if it's going to work in the future? So two things on that. You just said a relative, and everybody listening to this just flashed to that relative. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I that do. Was the, <laughs> <laughs> the other thing is that my mother, specifically, is known for her early preparation for Pesach. She starts cooking for Pesach before Purim. Mm. And for the first couple of years she did that, she posted it on Facebook. Like, she started to cook. She started turning over her ex-second kitchen uh, before Purim started. And that got people stressed out. Like, oh, no, it's coming. So she stopped posting on social media because people stopped complaining. But when you're talking about preparation, yeah, because it's not just the mental preparation, it's the physical preparation. And if you remember being crunched last year for this type of mm-hmm. yuntif, then you have to start earlier. And I know people don't want to hear that, but that's probably the best way to go. Start earlier. You can never start be Start earlier, prepared. sure. I mean, I, I'm going to tack something onto that because as you're talking about it, I, I thought about another piece of preparation that's really important, mental preparation that's really important, and that is remind yourself to enjoy Yontif. You know, we get so caught up in the minutia 
we miss the forest for the trees. Right. So take a moment and remind yourself that you're supposed to enjoy this and enjoy it. All right. Let's talk about another one. Kids. Mm. Kids stressing you out. Kids underperforming in school. Kids not listening to you. Kids having a very difficult time uh, with their peers. And it's stressing you out. Kids are sick all the time. I know that's a lot of different things. but I'm going to address two of them. Okay. Number one is raising kids is hard. And, uh, you know, since this is, I, one of the struggles I have with my podcast is so much of my thinking is religious thinking. And even though I speak about it on the podcast, I know that most of the people that listen to my podcast are not religious or I, I don't know, I assume just based on the feedback that I get. And so I'm going to throw a little re- religion into this one and it's, it's a nice refreshing change. So we have what's our good old right? We have uh, pain in raising kids. That is the way God created it. And acceptance of that fact is going to go a long way towards relief of that fact. One of the things that, one of the reasons, again, it comes down to the relationship. Uh, One of the reasons that this thing in our life called the pain of raising kids is so painful is because we have this image that it should not be that way. And we're lying to ourselves. Raising kids is painful. And so acceptance of that is step one. And then you, uh, you spoke about kids not doing well academically. Now, this is a hard one for me. Because, like, I come from a family of teachers and principals, and I loved being in school. Uh, specifically, I loved, like, you know, the, the, the academic part of it. And realizing that while it is important, on a certain level, really there's more important things. How a kid is doing socially is vastly more important than how a kid is doing academically. That doesn't mean that how a kid is doing academically is not important. It is. How a kid is doing socially is vastly more important than how they're doing academically. I think about uh, Rick Lavoie, who works with uh, young men and women with special needs, right? And he says he has never had a parent come to him and say, Mr. Lavoie, my kid's not doing well in school. They say, my kid's not doing well with his relationships. So if you have a kid that's not necessarily doing great in school, but is doing well in their relationships, that's good. Grades are important, but they're not the most important. That's funny. You're the second guest that we've had on this show to mention that grades can be secondary to people's social skills. Uh, we had Dr. Ellie Shapiro, who runs a program that warns people. It's called the Digital Citizenship Project, where he explains the, the hazards of uh, technology. And we had him on a previous episode. And he also mentioned that the social aspect is more important, is growing more important than the academic aspect. When you're saying that, it's uh, a thought just occurred to me. Um, again, and this comes back to brings a full circle because, you know, this is how we gain in thinking. I do wonder if one of the reasons why we sometimes focus on grades is because grades are something that we can very easily evaluate, whereas social skills and, and, and relationships are really hard to evaluate. And so because, you know, as people, you know, we tend to go for the easiest path um, so we can be like, oh, look, you know, he got a, a 64 on his, his spelling test. We're going to focus on that instead of look at all the friends he has, because how many friends you have is, especially for parents with kids, it can be kind of like, who are they friends with at school? You don't know how many friends they have, what's the quality of those relationships, et cetera, et cetera. That's hard to judge. 64, that's a number on a paper. It's easy to do. Right. And we can kind of get lost with that. It's funny you mentioned that spelling test. I was a terrible speller and still my first career was as an English teacher. So I could, t- <laughs> I could well, tell you that. Yeah, let me ask you a question. Were either of your parents bad spellers? Yes. Yeah, because spelling is genetic as is handwriting. Hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. All right, so the last 
stressor I want to talk to you about is parents and in-laws. Mentioned it briefly, could have been guests coming for Yuntif, but mm-hmm. uh, we're recording this type of Hanukkah. There's going to be family gatherings. Some people live in the same communities as their parents or, and or in-laws. Some don't. Either one of those are potential stressors. What can you say to people who are having potential stressors with their parents or their in-laws? Robin Williams, uh, I totally not going to nail the quote because I saw this like 20 years ago, maybe more. But he said in an exception speech, uh, he got an award and he dedicated it to his father. And he said there's this wonderful moment in a son's life when his father stops becoming his hero and starts becoming a man or, or something like that, right? Something to that effect. Stops becoming this hero and starts becoming a man. I didn't understand it at the time, but I, I kind of get it now. And that's when we're kids, our parents are our gods, lowercase g, gods, right? They are in control of our universe. Right. And because of that, we kind of set our parents up for failure in our minds in that we forget that they're human. We forget that they're doing the best that they can with the tools that they have. I work with mostly uh, the geriatric population, and I cannot tell you how many people are in their 70s, 80s, 90s, and are still talking about their parents. And they still haven't gotten to the point of like, your parents really did the best they could with what they had. You know, your parents were people too. They were flawed, sure. You know, did they mess you up? Sure. Was it beyond their control? Kind of. They did the best they could with the tools they had. And more than that, if we could go take a time machine and just look at all these events that we think were so bad or or these things, they're generally not as bad as we remember them being because when they were happening, they were happening to us. And so we have emotions evolved. And then those emotions affect our memories. And those memories affect our emotions and our growth in a cycle and it gets worse and worse and worse. And so the event becomes much worse or much different than we remember. And so, sure, yeah, do our parents the biggest, generally, are parents the biggest influence on people's lives? Absolutely. Can parents stress out kids, even adult kids? 100%. One of the hard parts of being an adult with, a, you know, with living parents and with kids is juggling between your parents, who you want to make happy still, and your spouse and kids that you want to make happy, and yourself that you want to make happy. It's a lot of balls being in the air. And then you add in-laws in. And now they're kind of parents, but they're not really, and they're your spouse's parents. So your spouse is now playing the game in their in her or his head that you're playing with your parents in your head, and now you're trying to work it out together, you know. And you know, for example, holiday parties, right? I'm sure there's a lot of arguments in every home about holiday parties because inevitably both sides schedule the party on the same day at the same time in two different cities, <laughs> right? So do we go to your parents to go to my parents? Do we spend half the time by your parents to spend half the time by my and and it's real. I, I'm trying, you know, I'm I'm kind of making light of it, but it's real because you're juggling all this stuff in your head. And so when it comes to parents and in-laws, remembering your parents are human. You know, we spoke before about remembering that the same way you're the star of your own show, they're the star of their show, they're human too, they're also struggling. All that stuff applies, but even more so to parents because they're so influential in our lives, throughout our lives, even when they're dead, they're influential. You know, I've had many people that I work with that are in their, again, 70s, 80s, 90s, 50s, 60s, whose parents are no longer alive. And now they have to work on their relationship with their parents with somebody who's dead. Right? If your parents are alive, do it now. You know, like uh, I'm working with somebody literally today 
I spoke to somebody and we're talking about his mother and, and how her actions affected him as a kid and how that changed his life. And, and looking and even in the session, he's like, you know, he's still not, he's not yet up to the, the phase of acceptance and forgiveness, but even in the thing now he's like, well, I do wonder if my, my mother was withholding love from me because my father had just come back from the, from the war, from the Korean war. And he was in a bad place and she needed to focus on him and therefore she couldn't focus as much on me. And when he was gone, I got all of her attention. Now I didn't didn't have it all. And he's first understanding that now when he's in his late 70s. Wow. You know, so that's some powerful stuff. And now he has to deal with a mother who's no longer alive and forgive her and, and relate to her and connect to her. And she's not there. So if you're younger and your parents are still alive, you know, connect with them now. Don't put down the, you know, put down the, the cross. We're Jewish, so we don't do that. But you know, don't uh, <laughs> don't bear such a grudge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> put down the mug and dove it. You know, like your parents are people too. Svi Hilsner, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find your show? I'm on all the major podcast things: Spotify, the Apple uh, Podcast app, Google Play. You can find me. Um, I'm also online. You can go to my website, thoughtfulmindpodcast.com. You can listen there. You can get in contact with me through the website if you have any questions or, you know, I, I always like to hear from people. I, I don't know about you, but one of the things that keeps me going as a podcaster is when people reach out to me and say, you know, I really like this or I have this question because it's lonely. You know, it's lonely, yeah. man. When it's yeah, just it's, you and a mic or it's just you and one other person in a mic, it's lonely. I feel specifically, I, I really like when people tell me, oh, can you cover this? Like, I think that mm -hmm. you do a show on mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. So whatever that this is, I generally, it makes me feel like people are actually listening and they think that what, what you're doing is important. Yeah, and, and I'm going to throw one more thing in for free because a tip I heard, which I do, is uh, whenever somebody does that, I print it out and put it in a folder. So I have a folder of all like the, you know, the nice stuff that people say. And the reason I have that folder or I have on my phone, like I, if yeah. somebody, you know, I, I take a screenshot of it, right? Yeah, Why yeah. do I do that? Because we all get down sometimes. We all doubt ourselves sometimes. And so... I have a physical thing that reminds me how awesome I am. Not in an egotistical sense, but in, in, in the reality, everybody's awesome. I truly believe this is at the core of who I am. I believe everybody's awesome. And so, you know, if you don't have a podcast or you don't have people send you emails about how awesome you are, but you can collect things in your life that remind you of times in your life when you felt awesome, when you felt like you were fully alive and having those things around to look at and remind yourself when you are down, you do start to doubt yourself. That's important because it reminds you of the inner awesomeness that you have. That's a great note to end on. Now I'm going to be singing the Lego movie song the rest of the night. Um, I've never Svi, seen it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Svi, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Absolutely. My thanks to Tzvi Hilsenrath for joining me this week. I have to tell you, this episode made me analyze myself as an individual as well as a podcast host more than maybe any other show we've done so far. And that's exactly what Tzvi tries to help people do each week on his podcast. So check it out if you have a chance. For now, as always, Kol Tov. The Jewish Living Podcast is produced by Sroli Pikes. Our theme song is The Band by A.B. Rottenberg from Journeys 4. You can email the show at jewishlivingpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Jewish underscore living. The Jewish Living Podcast is recorded in conjunction with the Queen's Jewish Link. <laughs>